Hello and welcome to The Spectator Podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, Tory infighting comes to the fore, but could the party be even more divided than we thought? Meanwhile, across the pond, Donald Trump continues to cause backlash. Is he to blame for an ideological shift to the left in the country? Thankfully, our own head of state isn't on Twitter, though that doesn't stop people speculating about Her Majesty's personal opinions. Is the Queen a Eurosceptic? First, the Conservative Party is taking up arms against itself. This week, backroom plotting came to the fore with the Brexiteer group, the European Research Group, openly discussing Mrs May's demise and Boris Johnson dominating the headlines. But James Forsyth reveals in this week's cover piece that there are more fractures in the party than merely a Chequers brexiteer divide. He joins me now to explain the complex situation, together with Paul Goodman, former Tory MP and editor of Conservative Home. James, can you just briefly explain, in a simple fashion, the divisions that are racking the Tories at the moment? Well, it's tempting to say that there's a pro-Chequers faction and an anti-Chequers faction. In fact, there are multiple pro-Chequers factions, some which actually aren't very pro-Chequers at all, and there are multiple anti-Chequers factions. But to start with the the pro-Chequers faction, I'd say there are three groups in favour of Chequers. The smallest of those is the group concentrated around the Prime Minister who actually think that a deal, something quite close to this, can be done with the EU, that the proposals have a kind of inherent merit in their own right, and that despite lots of evidence to the contrary, it is actually negotiable, that ultimately the member states will push Barnier to engage with it far more than he has so far. Then there is the second group, who like checkers because they think that it is beginning to sweep away the obstacles to further concessions to the EU and ultimately getting to an economic relationship with the EU that is as close as it is possible to be to being in the single market without actually being in the single market. I mean, that is back to our old friend, kind of Norway minus. Then there is the third group, which is the most rapidly growing group in the cabinet at the moment, interestingly. And its view are... We backed Chequers at the time because the Prime Minister deserves a chance to see if she could make her plan work. She's the Prime Minister after all. But it is now becoming clear that the EU isn't going to bite on Chequers. They're not going to accept this division of a single market. We cannot accept the kind of concessions on free movement to customs union that might make the EU interested in Chequers. So the question now is, when does the Prime Minister change tack? And an interesting one of this group said to me, look, the reason we have to go out and sell it is if we go out and try and sell checkers, we're in a stronger position when we come back to her in October or so and say, look, you've got to move off checkers, it's not working. Because this group's great worry is that the EU will never formally pronounce checkers dead. They'll string Theresa May along and then at the last minute they'll say to her, well, look, really, there's a choice. You sign up to a customs union or there's no deal. And in that circumstance, she would likely end up having to sign up to a customs union and to lots of Brexiteers, that would destroy the whole point of Brexit. Paul, have you ever seen the Conservative Party this divided before? This is a bigger issue with the referendum now in place than anything it's faced before. So the rouse of the 1990s, Maastricht, the struggles that went on in opposition, David Cameron's run to the referendum, no. You didn't have an issue like this that's capable of not just dividing the, the Tory party, but actually kind of splitting it. I think the kind of shorthand for what James was saying is that almost nobody really supports Chequers. Even Robbie Gibb, 
and Barwell, but Robbie in particular, the chief of staff and the communications officer, who are out there selling this thing on Theresa May's behalf, because you can't get any cabinet ministers to do it, even Robin Gibb, I understand, is going around saying what Theresa May cannot say or won't say, which is that if you don't do this, we won't get Brexit at all. You know, he's going around groups in the party doing this. He's making this case to Conservative MPs. So a point to reflect on is, you know, why aren't cabinet ministers doing that? It is important to remember MPs won't vote on something called checkers. They won't vote on checkers minus or plus or Canada or Norway. They will vote on the withdrawal agreement plus a vague political declaration. Now, if it's not vague enough, there will be points in it that the Brexiteers will attack, for example, on freedom of movement. If it's too vague, the argument will be, why are we handing over £40 billion for nothing very much? James, has Theresa May had any more success in persuading ministers to say nice things about checkers? Or has she given up doing that, as, as Paul says, just leaving Robbie Gibb and Gavin Barwell to do the private work with backbenchers? Well, they're all being required to do two days of um, selling checkers. and But I'm told that there's been a certain tardiness in sending kind of Brandon Lewis and CCHQ the dates on which they wish to go and sell checkers to Tory audiences. What happens if they don't? Uh, People will be very cross. Yes. And I also am slightly suspicious of this because before the summer, they sent a message round to cabinet ministers saying everyone must do a media round defending checkers over the summer. And one minister said, oh, it'd be very interesting to see if Estimate Bay does that. Now, I um, mm. scandalously took nearly all of August off on holiday. But I don't think there was a great estimate of a media around selling checkers. Um, I think it's one of Theresa May's problems is that she's not in a... With, after the Boris Johnson and David Davis resignations, she's not really in a position to lose more people from her government. And that makes it quite hard when people say, well, I don't want to sell it. Also, what happens when they do go out to sell it? And the interesting article in last weekend's Mail on Sunday, in a way, wasn't Boris Johnson's latest extravaganza. It was the piece below it by Jeremy Hunt, which was the pro-checkers piece. But when you looked at it closely, it was riddled with interesting lines and allusions. So one way of reading it would be as a very, very strong defence of an end to free movement. Right, he put that in very strongly. So even if these ministers, Esther McVeigh, Penny Mordaunt, Liam Fox is doing it all on his own terms, Sajid Javid, we're told, is not an enthusiast for checkers, or Hunt, go out and make a case, it can't necessarily be the case the PM will want. And let's just look at the plotting that we've heard reported this week from the European Research Group, James. How serious is that? I, I think if you were number 10, you, you might be tempted to pop a champagne cork on hearing this news because it's the worst kind of plotting. And, and interestingly, Steve Baker, who's kind of one of the cannier organisers, apparently kept trying to kind of stop all the, this chat in the meeting. And Jacob Rees-Mogg, another person who, who, whatever you think of his views on this, is, is a kind of uh, an astute operator, wasn't there. What I think this was, was that the most vocally disaffected members of ERG openly talking. But the ERG have this fundamental problem, which is, yes, they could probably get together enough letters to force a vote of confidence in her, but they couldn't get anywhere near the 158 votes they needed to defeat her. And it's not just that if they tried to remove her and failed, they would be in no better position than they are today. They'd be in a considerably worse position, because under the Tory party's rules, she would then have a year without challenge. And the first thing that would happen after she had won that leadership vote. You know, she before Gavin Barwell and Robbie Gibber patted her on the back, Philip Hammond and Greg Clark would be turning up and down the street saying, look, 
You've got a year without these people causing you trouble. Now you can make some more concessions that we can get some more market access. We can do a we can do a deal with the EU which preserves more of the benefits of single market membership. And and that's and the Brexiteer ultras would have lost leverage because they couldn't turn around and say, if you do that, the letters will go in and there'll be a leadership challenge. I mean that basically sounds right, but I'll just add a wrinkle which was put to me by a minister recently, which is this. It's a bit fanciful, but just hear it out. She plugs away at checkers, gets nowhere. The EU says, well, this isn't going to work. Why don't we try Canada, which is a well-established model? Somehow you fix the Northern Ireland problem, but Theresa May is still embedded deep in checkers. At that point, is it possible to imagine the parliamentary party does force out and someone comes in to do Canada instead. I think it's a bit fanciful, but you know, I've heard this put around and it's just worth thinking about. I think there's another possibility, which is that, very similar to, to your theory, which is the political declaration comes out. Theresa May is refusing to admit that anything has changed and that Chequers is dead. Nothing has changed, she will say. You know, they're still engaging with it. They just won't admit that they're engaging with it. But then David Davies comes out and says, well, actually, I'm going to vote for the withdrawal agreement because I've looked at the political declaration and it is quite clear that we've been heading where I've been arguing we should go for a long time, which is Canada, because they won't divide up the single market in the way that Chequers imagines. So it's fine because we're going to end up signing a Canada-style deal. I think there are lots of options like this. And I think that in reality, the, the, the final trade deal that the UK and the EU sign, because the EEA option is off the table, really, because of free movement, is going to end up being somewhere between Canada and Chequers. It will require kind of more integration and harmonisation than Canada does, but it won't be the kind of common rulebook of Chequers, I don't think. And Paul, the slogan for this year's Conservative Party conference is Opportunity for All, which is being widely mocked as a slogan about the leadership contest when it kicks <laughs> off. You've got Boris Johnson speaking at a Conservative home rally. He's one of the most obvious leadership contenders, but who are the others? Opportunity for all such an old John Major slogan from the 1990s, which is not necessarily a happy precedent. It all depends when it happens, doesn't it? The further off a leadership contest is, the more the people who fancy their chances in the long term, like pick a name from the spectator at random, Tom Tugendhat, that generation would fancy their chances. The sooner it is, if it was literally tomorrow, it'd be hard to see people in it other than Boris Johnson, Sajid, maybe Jeremy Hunt. There's something that's worth looking out for. If Chequers really doesn't go well for the Prime Minister and an anti-Chequers candidate gets in the last two, assuming it's two, just ask yourself if it could be someone other than Boris Johnson if he couldn't get through. The kind of Andrea Ledsom de Nojour. I have no idea who that person would be. Maybe it would be a sort of pretty Patel type person who comes from nowhere gets in the last two and is endorsed by the Brexiteer members. Again, um, it's a bit outré, but I just wonder if it could possibly happen. James, before I ask you for your tips for the next leader, how seriously should we take the reports of entryism in the party from Aaron Banks' side? I, I think this is an interesting question, which is some of this is natural. The Tory party shed quite a lot of members to UKIP, largely because of the European issue. I think also some people kind of went over gay marriage and other stuff like that. You would expect some of those to come back after the Brexit 
referendum. That's natural. You'd also expect some people who might like the cut of someone's jib, who they see running for leader, who were members years ago but have let it lapse to rejoin. So I think you know. So I don't think you can. And also remember, the Tory vote is very different now than what it was in in 2015. I think the John Curtis stat is now 70% of Tory voters are leavers. So you would expect the membership to be becoming more leavy. What I don't think is right is this idea that somehow Aaron Banks, you know, a man. Who, who really delivers quite what he says he's going to deliver, is, is bringing in kind of tens of thousands of new members into the Tory party who are all going to vote for the candidate he tells them to vote for. And who, who are you tipping? So I think Sajid Javid is the current frontrunner. Boris Johnson's big problem is I really struggle to see how he gets the support of 106 Tory MPs, which is what he would need to be guaranteed a place in the final two. Uh, I would say watch Dominic Raab, the Brexit secretary. His stock is rising fast. Now, obviously, if you rise fast, you can fall fast. But at the moment, he is definitely on the up. And if there's a deal, you can see him saying to pragmatists, look, I was part of a team that got a deal, while at the same time saying to Brexiteers, if you want someone to negotiate something closer to Canada than Chequers... I'm your man. I would add a, I would add a kind of Paul-style wrinkle here, though, which is Ruth Davidson. Now, she is not going to be available to come down to Westminster until 2021 at the earliest. She is determined, not only is she going on maternity leave now, but she's also determined to fight the 2021 Holyrood elections. But as she said to the spectator at Christmas, you know, once I've done that, I'll look at my options. And, you know, that might include coming down south now if you are i think if you are on the as one very sharp observer of tory politics said to me if you're on the left of a tory party she is by far your best candidate she is the only person on the left of a tory party at the moment with kind of bags of charisma you know and she who might stand a chance in the final two up against a kind of more brexity candidate so hasn't that group got a vested interest in trying to keep theresa may in place for as long as possible because if you could get theresa may until 2021 you might have a chance of getting Ruth Davidson into the mix. So I think that is, that is, that is Theresa May's one hope for why she might not be leaving Downing Street very soon after the withdrawal agreement passes through the House of Commons next spring. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, James. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. It's Tory civil war over here, but across the pond, the blue wave is rising. The Democrats are surfing joyously off the back of Trump and his tweets. At least, that's what Republican political strategist Rick Wilson argues in this week's magazine. His new book, Everything Trump Touches Dies, argues that Republicans are handing power over to the Democrats with such a divisive president. I'm joined by Rick now, together with Malin Baker, spokesperson for Republicans Overseas. So Rick, why do you say that everything Trump touches dies? I've looked at the the impact Donald Trump has had throughout his business history, his personal history, and now his political history, and there is a consistent pattern that this is a man who, because of his behaviors, his beliefs, and because of the way he compromises people around him, that he causes this almost universal collapse of people's moral and political reputations in a way that is inexorable. And there's, there's almost no case where you can say that person left Donald Trump's service with a better reputation and a better standing than they came in with. Malin, do you agree with that? America's economic growth is looking pretty rosy compared to Britain's, for instance. 
Yes, America's economic growth is looking pretty rosy. To be honest, I think this is probably going to be a pretty friendly conversation because I'm not a particular Donald Trump supporter either. But do I think that this is necessarily going to be the death of the Republican Party? No. I think you are experiencing some similar difficulties in political identity from the left in America, and those will really impact on electoral performance. And while they might be less easy to see, particularly from across the Atlantic, I think that's something that's really going to need an examination to get a good functioning two-party system back it, in America. It makes more sense, Rick, for the party that's out of the out of the White House to be in turmoil about its identity, less so for the one that's actually got the presidency. Well, that's certainly true. And I think Malin is mistaken about the future of the party. I look at it as a cataclysm. I, I think we're at a point right now where Donald Trump has redefined the Republican Party as his own personal political party. It has been rebranded and redefined in, in such a way that Republicans' entire fortunes rise and fall with him. And I think that the one factor of the economy that Trump supporters seem to rely on, this is the same economy that's been floating on a gigantic bubble of quantitative easing from the Federal Reserve for almost a decade now since the 2008 financial collapse. We juiced this economy with trillions in new debt, and that, that sugar high has been going on for a long time now. And we, we did a tax bill that, that boosted that sugar high a little longer. I think the consequences of that when they hit are going to have you know, both a terrible economic end and a terrible political end. You always end up paying for a long night of drinking tequila, as my dad used to say. I think it's really popular as political commentators to pronounce things dead and to pronounce something to be a cataclysm. And I think in the end, it rarely actually in the long term turns out to be particularly accurate, nor does it tend to be particularly helpful to identifying a way forward. I mean, we've heard here in Britain over and over, oh, the election of Jeremy Corbyn means the Labour Party is dead. Oh, there's going to be a coup this week against Theresa May. You know, none of these things have particularly come to pass and haven't been particularly useful guiding forces for either party in resolving their difficulties. And I think you've got a similar situation in America. There are major difficulties for both parties. And I think we need to examine as well, you know, we've had this retrenchment on, on the left um, as, as well, which could also be seen to be cataclysmic. So for example, the number one best predictor of whether or not somebody voted for Donald Trump in 2016 was whether they said they agreed with a statement roughly, I'm proud to be American and believe people in America should be proud to be American and do American things. Whether Donald Trump is a good exemplar of American values is really neither here nor there to that. It means that there isn't going to be, unfortunately, this mass defection to a Democratic Party right now, which is putting up increasingly left-wing candidates who increasingly do not speak positively to any sort of sense of that pride in America. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, for example, may be a much friendlier and more charismatic face than Donald Trump is. However, on questions of foreign policy and economic literacy, comes out actually with, with things that are sort of similar levels of not really in tune with history or reality as much of the Republican leadership does right now. So do I think this is a cataclysm and is going to produce this major realignment? No. Do I think there are things that need to be sorted out in order to have a more vibrant, and more civil and more functional democracy and particularly interaction between the executive and the legislature? Absolutely, yes. Rick, what do you think needs to happen to realise those goals that Malin just listed? Well, let me correct a little bit on this. We've actually done a, a good bit of post hoc research from the voter file and from interviews and from 
tens of thousands of survey interviews. And the strongest determinant of Trump voting came out to be a sense of economic and racial animus. There was a, a very large group of folks in this country that were activated either subtly or not so subtly by Donald Trump being an avatar of the sort of dying steel town, dying Midwestern economy, and speaking in some very ugly coded language. And that status anxiety problem, there's been a lot of academic and, and political reporting about it. So Donald Trump was not just talking about American pride. There was a negative side to that that was a strongly determinant factor in the campaign. But we'll, we'll leave that and move forward. The, the Democrats have, have nominated some fairly left-wing people in some states, but they also have candidates like Connor Lamb and Northam in Virginia who have actually not been as stuck in the far-left lane, which is surprising because Democrats always contain the seeds of their own destruction politically. But the National Party on the Democratic side has for once let their candidates run races that are appropriate to their states and districts without trying to top-down them from Command Central. So that may be just a front but they've certainly had some practical political moves in that regard that, that have been more efficient politically than I would have normally expected. Now, in terms of building out the future, the Republicans have swallowed a demographic poison pill. We see that right now younger voters are robustly hostile to the Republican Party and to Donald Trump. We're buying a huge amount of trouble with Hispanic and other minority voters for the future. African-American support for Donald Trump and the Republican Party is at a all-time low. We've seen voter performance in 2017 and 2018 special elections among those groups that has scared the hell out of the Republican leadership, which is why you've even got seats like Texas in competition. You know, Beto O'Rourke may not win Texas, but he's in the fight, and he shouldn't be given you know, the traditional Republican character of that state. But these younger and more African-American and more Hispanic voters are absolutely sending a stark signal to this party and I don't say this as some leftist. I say this as a Republican who's you know, worked for 30 years in professional campaigns and in, and in government in an attempt to you know, have a conservative governing majority in this country. Malin, what do you make of the Republicans' prospects for the midterms? I think, you know, it, it is often traditional that a sitting president takes a bit of a hit at the midterms, though it's not a foregone conclusion. However, when you think further down the line to the next presidential election, the power of the incumbency in America is very significant. So you expect a second term for Trump? In American politics, you're asked to make predictions very, very far out. Right now, I, I would say I would probably predict it, but you are asked to make predictions very far out. I completely take Rick's points. I mean, to be honest, He's, he's probably a much better Republican and has been much more devoted to working for the party than, than I have over, over my life. However, I think, while I take the point about there being contests in places where there wouldn't traditionally be contests, something that was interesting to me is thinking about where support for Democrats and for Republicans, and particularly for Donald Trump, is stacking up. So if you look at Howard County, Iowa, which is the only county in America that voted for Obama by more than 20 points in 2012, and then for Donald Trump by more than 20 points in 2016, you find that actually voters there who made that switch are 
report not only that they're happy with making that switch, but they report that they're happy with making that switch despite news of policies of Donald Trump's affecting them in ways that you might consider to be adverse and that would put them off. So for example, there's a significant agricultural economic interest there. Prices fall on corn due to Donald Trump's announcements of tariff policies. And people there say, yes, that is hitting my business. But I'm still interested and pleased to see that he's looking to renegotiate these deals. So I think you have seen that people really aren't reaching that point where they're willing to break back to the Democrats, particularly with the way the Democrats are going all across the country. Thanks, Rick and Malin. From one head of state to another, in this week's magazine, Robert Hardman takes a look at the British sovereign. Unlike Trump, there is an aura of respect and dignity that hangs around the Queen, not least because she has always maintained neutrality in politically divisive times. Brexit is one such time, and so was our accession to the EU in 1972. In his piece, Robert tells a story about how the monarchy dealt with a Europhile foreign office while joining the EU was still a controversial issue back home. Robert joins me now, together with Hannah Furness, royal correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. So, Robert, you write in your piece that the Queen's 1972 state visit to France was a tricky affair. Why was that? Well, for the Queen, Brexit really is a walk in the park compared to Brentry. What we forget is that when Britain first started making overtures about joining the common market back in the 60s, this went down terribly badly with a lot of the countries that the Queen was Queen of. It was only really two decades since the end of the Second World War when a lot of these countries had fought and in many cases died for Britain's side. And all of a sudden, the British government was siding with what they regarded as the old enemy. And a lot of them were, were very resentful of the Queen over that. So, for example, when she went on her 1963 tour to Australia and New Zealand, the crowds were way down. There were a lot of reports of a rather sort of sullen reaction. The Queen definitely was seen to be looking rather drawn and unhappy. And it, it got all the way back up to the Foreign Office in London, who were... I found these these internal documents from the then Commonwealth Secretary to the High Commissioners there saying, look, tell me what's going on. And they were reporting back that people were very unhappy, that Britain was effectively turning its back on the old allies for a sort of sexy, younger European model. And that was back in the 60s. And all the way through Britain's overtures to the European Union, this coloured the relationship between the Queen and the Commonwealth. And so by the time he got to 1972, and it was sort of full steam ahead, and Heath wanting to use that state visit as, if you like, almost a sort of coronation of Britain's entry into Europe, it did inevitably present problems for the Queen. But as a constitutional monarch, that's what she was obliged to do, and she did it, and she did it very well. Hannah, there's been a lot of speculation on the Queen's views on Brexit today. What do you know about them? Has she confided in you personally? She has not sadly confided in me personally. I find it quite remarkable that anybody would claim that the Queen has shared her views on Brexit with them. I think as somebody who spent her entire life not giving away what she thinks about anything political, it would be astonishing if she started to do so now. Um, I think one of the wonderful things about the Queen is that she's always been an enigma to most people because she never gives away what she thinks. It leaves her very open to be a blank canvas for anybody to project their own opinions onto her and a smile and a nod and a polite question can very easily be interpreted as supporting whatever you believe yourself. I wouldn't personally move to suggest whatever she's whatever she thinks that she agrees with you personally Hannah exactly but I do think that Robert is right that the Queen and all of the royal family will be 
used by the Foreign Office with their agreement in terms of travelling around the world to smooth things over post-Brexit and during the negotiations. Do you think the Queen has ever been tempted to offer her opinions on this matter? I mean, it is the erosion of her sovereignty or has been the erosion of her sovereignty or that's what Tory Brexiteers would argue anyway. Yeah, and she's been a target over many years of a letter and postcard writing campaign telling her to be mindful of her coronation oath. The Palace Postrum is forever getting letters on that front, but she is a constitutional monarch. She will be banned by what the government of the day tells her to do. In in the course of doing this book, I I interviewed several former foreign secretaries, including David Owen, who had a nice phrase. He talked about, he said, it it requires great courage to be boring. He says the Queen really does have that courage to be very, very boring on things like this, when everyone else has got an opinion. It, it, you know, it it actually does require a, a rare skill just to not let on what you're thinking. And she's done that time and again. And in terms of relations between Buckingham Palace and the Foreign Office, Hannah, are they always rosy or does the Foreign Office sometimes ask for too much? Well, one of the things I found very interesting in Robert's book, actually, you've been through the archives, haven't you, to Mm. see how the speeches that the Queen has made over the years overseas have been slightly amended. (laughs) I would characterise it as a sometimes robust discussion. Does that sound fair to you? You sound like a politician's (laughs) spokesperson now. (laughs) I've become a spokesman for the palace. I'm sure that the Foreign Office have asked members of the royal family to do things in the past that they're not comfortable with. I think that there's probably quite a forthright relationship there and I would imagine that the palace won't do anything that they don't want to do or can't see that a wider benefit in doing. And they do sometimes have to remember, the British government has to remember, she is queen of 15 other nations. I mean, this, the, on occasion this does present problems. Uh, in the book I, I talk about some of the summits where she was being pulled in two directions, the sort of ahead of the, the, the great Lusaka Commonwealth Summit, which was a sort of affair where Maggie Thatcher and the New Zealand government as well were saying, you mustn't go, it's too dangerous, your plane's going to be shot out of the sky. The rest of the Commonwealth saying, no, you've got to come, you've got to come. The Queen was very keen to come and, and you know, there was a lot of tension at the time But and there are these struggles between the private secretaries but the palace, occasionally, they do have to remind Whitehall she's Queen of other places. So, for example, in 1995, the New Zealand government were flying her out to New Zealand for a visit there. They were having to foot the bill and they wanted to fly her on a commercial flight and the British government said, oh, it's far too dangerous, you can't do that and it was the palace that said, well, actually, it's not your call because this trip's being organised by New Zealand. She's going as the Queen of New Zealand so she dutifully climbed aboard flight ANZ-1 I remember because I was on it at the back of the plane I might add and she went on her first scheduled flight all the way to New Zealand and they did spare her the duty free trolley though (laughs) Hannah do you think that her heirs will be quite so quiet on their opinions and that the conversations will remain robust rather than furious about politics Well, that is the $64,000 question, isn't it? That is what everybody is wondering when the inevitable transition happens and we have a king rather than a queen, whether the Prince of Wales, who for decades has had to carve out his own role with no real model to follow of what his role should be, whether those very many opinions that he has shared over the years will be quietly dropped or will they be remembered by critics? I think that he knows very well what his role will be as king, as a monarch. I think we will see his views disappear from public largely, I would imagine, but they're all on record. We remember them, they're written down, a lot of them, they're in public speeches. He's fortunate that a lot of his once controversial opinions have now become very mainstream things like plastics and the environment. The world has caught up with some of the things he's been saying for a long time. So in that sense, he's very fortunate whether architects will feel the same. (laughs) (laughs) We wait and see. 
Robert, in terms of the discussions that the Queen has with Prime Ministers every week to advise them, give us a flavour of what they've been like over the years. Well, all Prime Ministers have been very good about keeping Sturm on that, although Churchill did let slip as he came out really laughing, I mean, chuckling away from one uh, audience and did let slip to his private secretary that they'd been talking about racing. And he said she was on great form tonight. And Jim Callaghan had a very good phrase where he said, you don't get friendship, but you get friendliness. And I think a lot of Prime Ministers have just felt, particularly after a week when maybe they don't think they can trust anyone at all around the cabinet table, that here is someone they really can unburden themselves to. And So she's uh, sort of counsel. She, yes, I mean, she's been likened to a counsellor, a psychiatrist, someone called her the great sponge. Um, you know, she just soaks up these sort of thoughts and fears. Uh, there is that role. And, and obviously, with her, you know, advancing years, there's just this great repository of wisdom. And I have spoken to one or two prime ministers who just said, you know, you can run a particular worry or concern. And she'll go, oh, yes, well, I remember, you know, when, um, you know, Harold Macmillan had a similar problem. And, and it, I think it, it does give you a certain comfort. There is a loneliness at the top. She obviously can feel that because she is number one and I think Prime Ministers feel it sometimes so you know it's it's nice to be able to bounce the old idea and worry off someone who really has been there. And know that she's not going to hop down to a Westminster restaurant and tell one of us <laughs> what they've been thinking. There will be no blabbing. Hannah do you think that Prince Charles again will be able to conduct that role in, in the same way given his views have been broadcast before becoming monarch? Won't it just be difficult for a Prime Minister to approach him with a policy that he's thinking about to get his view, given he already sort of knows where the monarch would stand? I think we've got to be a little bit careful in thinking of the Queen as she is now and as it's been over the last 10 years. It's been a very long relationship between the Queen and very many Prime Ministers that would have changed very much from when she was very young, dealing with elder statesmen who would have found it possibly the first time they've ever had that level of conversation with a young woman up to today when she's seen as almost a grandmotherly figure to young politicians going in and looking after them. So I think the Prince of Wales will have to establish his own relationship. It may be rather difficult for politicians to begin those negotiations and those discussions, but I think they'll find their own pattern and we'll never, ever hear about it. <laughs> and I, I think it's worth remembering that in, in many ways the Queen has been the exception rather than the rule. People say, well, Prince Charles, you know, he's going to have to remember, you know, not to, to let on or, or argue with politicians because his mother never did. But actually, if you look back, um, the, the, the Queen's own father, George VI, he would often have quite heated arguments with his ministers, particularly over the, the start of the NHS. He, he he took off one of his shoes and waved it around saying, look, I don't get free shoes, why are people getting free false teeth? You know, the, the, the previous monarch, I mean, George V, he, he would have ter- terrible rows with his ministers about often about rather strange things, like you know, when people should wear hats. And we got incredibly angry with the government of Canada for signing a halibut treaty with the USA without asking him. It sounds um, a bit like scallop wars of <laughs> yes, today. <laughs> exactly. So in a sense, you know, uh, yes, the Queen has been this very enigmatic figure who, who we really don't know that much about, but, you know, previous monarchs, I think think we do. And the Prince of Wales is about to turn 70 in November and he has met people from all walks of life and as far as I'm aware he hasn't had stand-up rows in public with very many of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, with the exception of the Queen, there's, I mean, there's no one who's got a greater knowledge of really public life. Don't forget, he's been now wandering around the country, meeting people, talking to people for longer than any MP, I think, bar maybe two. He should be coming up to retirement, but he's about to celebrate his 70th and on he goes. That was Robert Hardman and Hannah Furness. Thanks for joining us. If you want to hear more from Robert, he's got a documentary on ITV on his book coming out soon. And that's all for this week. 
But if you want to hear more about US politics, do tune in to our weekly Americano podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as more from Rachel Johnson, Damian Thompson and Katie Balls. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Thank <music> you.